Well, good morning. Would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much uh, for the truth that we just sang. There's so much that we often forfeit because we don't look to you. We don't keep our eyes fixed on your son, Jesus. God, I thank you for the truth that we find in your word that, that your son has the power to set us free. Your son has the power to give us life, true life, abundant life, that you've given us purpose for the time that we have here on this earth. And uh, God, we confess that we, we miss out on that a lot. And so we come before you now and we pray that what we just sang would be true in our hearts. And God, I pray that you would speak to us powerfully through your word and that you would uh, remind us how powerful you are. And that we'd be reminded of our salvation and we'd be reminded of the purpose that you have for our lives. We love you and we give this time to you. In the name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, I was talking to Pastor Russ before the service just briefly and um, he reminded me um, what my intentions were for this morning. Uh, about uh, three or four weeks ago, I told him that my plan for this Sunday was that we were, gonna, we were going to go through the entire Old Testament together. <laughs> I wasn't kidding. <laughs> my, that, was my, that was my goal. Um, that I wanted to do a, an Old Testament survey in about 35 minutes. Um, that was my goal. Um, I need more time to get ready for that. Um, but, but it's coming. Uh, one of these Sundays you're going to show up. We're going to go from Genesis to Malachi together. Um, and it's gonna, I'm looking forward to that. Uh, but instead today, I'm excited, uh, if you have your Bible with you, to turn with me to Mark chapter 5. Today we're going to look at the story of Jesus and a demon-possessed man. Uh, as you're turning there, it's, it's a story that, that both Matthew and Luke write about in their Gospels as well. And I'm excited to be taking a look at this passage today because I believe that there are many people who desperately need to know just how powerful God is to free them from the chains that hold them captive. Too many people are living their lives in bondage while Jesus has the ability to set them free. I also believe that for many of us, uh, if you've been walking with Jesus for a while, it's good to remember what God has done in your life. It's good to be reminded and to, uh, as, as, as David said in Psalm 51, to be, to be uh, restored to the joy of your salvation. Um, to be reminded uh, once again of what our mission is. So before we get into Mark chapter 5, let me go ahead and just uh, set the stage for the story that we're about to read. In chapter 4 of, of Mark's gospel, Jesus and his disciples, they are in Capernaum. On the, it's on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus tells his disciples to get into the boat and travel across the sea to the other side. And it's, it's night, and so they do. They get in their boat, and they're traveling across the sea. And as they're traveling through the night, a storm comes upon them. And it's, a, it's, it's not an untypical type of storm that could come across the Sea of Galilee, but it is a, it's a violent storm. And as they're traveling, the boat uh, begins to fill with water. And, and the disciples, they begin to, to freak out. Uh, they're scared. They think that they're going to die. 
On the other hand, at the same time that the disciples, they're freaking out, Jesus is in the boat, and, and he's totally chill. In fact, Jesus is asleep in the back of the boat. He's lying down with his head on a cushion, and he's, he's out. He's not worried a bit. A violent storm at sea, and Jesus is, is fast asleep. And so the disciples, they go, and, and they wake him up. And they're like, Jesus, wake up. Don't you care? Don't you care that we're about to die? And so Jesus gets up. And he rebukes the storm. Three words. Jesus says, peace, be still. Three words he utters. And the storm stops. And the sea becomes quiet. And we're told that the disciples were filled with great fear. And they said to one another, who then is this? That even the wind and the sea obey him. And with three words, Jesus demonstrates his power over nature, over the, over the natural. Now, here in chapter 5, as they arrive on the other side of the sea, we get to see Jesus demonstrating his power over the supernatural as he has an encounter with a demon-possessed man. Let's talk about the supernatural for just a moment. In 2016, there was a Gallup poll that showed that 79% of Americans believe that there is a God. It may not be the same God that you believe in, but they believe that there is a God. Um, another 10% weren't really sure, while 11% did not believe. In that same poll, 71%, or 72% rather, uh, said that they believe in angels. So of the nearly 80% that believe that there's a God, only 72% believe that there's actually angels. And still fewer, only 61% believed that there is a devil. In his preface uh, to, to the book Screwtape Letters, C.S. Lewis says that there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race, the human race, can fall into about the devils or or demons. One is to disbelieve in their existence. And the other is to believe and to feel an excessive or unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors. The truth of the matter is when we talk about the supernatural, we have to understand that not everybody even believes in the supernatural. And I believe that Satan is perfectly content with that. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, Paul says that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. See, make no mistake, there is a very real, a very real spiritual battle that's being fought, even as we speak, in this room, I believe, for the souls of mankind. 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, we're told that the reason the Son of God, the reason that Jesus came was to destroy the works of the devil. Satan is real. Demons are real. But lest you be discouraged, neither Satan nor the demons are any match whatsoever for Jesus, the Son of God. 
And so we don't want to ignore the fact that they exist, but we also don't want to become preoccupied with the resistance because they are powerless to stand before Jesus. For those of you who are uh, taking notes today, I've summarized this passage, um, this story of Jesus and the demon-possessed man down to the following sentence. Jesus came for a broken man to set him free and to give him life. Jesus came for a broken man to set him free and give him life. So let's go ahead and jump into Mark chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Verse 1 says, They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes, and immediately were confronted with an amazing truth, I believe, and that is that Jesus came. Jesus came to the country of the Gerasenes, And why is that so amazing? Well, it's amazing because Jesus and the disciples, they're only going to be here long enough to have an encounter with this demon-possessed man. As soon as they have this encounter with the the demon-possessed man, Jesus and the disciples are going to get back in the boat and they're going to travel back across the sea to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus came to the country of the Gerasenes because Jesus seeks those that are lost. One of the great truths of Scripture is found in Luke chapter 19, verse 10. that says, The Son of Man, Jesus, came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus goes out of his way to rescue those that are hurting. And maybe if you are already a follower of Christ, you need to be reminded today that he did the same thing for you and for me. Jesus left heaven and came to earth to be born in a manger, to be mocked, to be ridiculed, to be crucified on a cross. Why? Because he saw you. Because he saw me. He saw a world full of hurting people, people without hope, people living in the shackles of sin. And so Jesus came. He came for you. And he came for me. Many of you have probably heard my story, but... I was 16 years old when Jesus rescued me. And for a variety of reasons that I won't go into today, I reached a point in my life where I was questioning whether or not there was any purpose for me to continue living. I was at the end of my rope. And at that time, God reached out to me through a friend. A friend of mine who, at the time, was serving a... 15-year sentence at the main state prison. And God used an incarcerated man to help me realize my need for Jesus. It's emotional. Jesus set me free. And uh, he changed my life. He changed my life. I was never the same after I came to know Jesus. I haven't, uh, I haven't always followed him flawlessly. In fact, Not long after my coming to know him, I rebelled drastically. Um, But he's been faithful to me the entire time. Because Jesus seeks those who are lost. Jesus came. Verse 2 says that, And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, he immediately, uh, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore not even with a chain. For he had often been 
bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. Somebody else is following along. <laughs> Someone's got their audio turned on for their Bible reader. <laughs> I can't keep up. But he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night, verse 5, night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. It's an incredible picture, isn't it? Jesus came for a broken man. This man was extremely tormented as an individual. Not only was he a danger to society, but he was a danger to himself. He was so fierce, he was so wild that nobody could contain him. The people, they, they tried to shackle him, but he was too strong. He would break the shackles. He would tear apart the chains. And so they cast him away to live among the dead, to live among the tombs. Verse 5 says that night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was, get this, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. To always be crying out, what a haunting picture that is. To be in constant anguish and constant torture. But you see, that's exactly what Satan wants to do to each and every one of us. Satan's desire is our destruction. Nobody hates you more than Satan. Satan took great pleasure in the torment of this man, and he takes great pleasure in tormenting us as well. In John chapter 8, verse 44, scriptures tell us that he, Satan, was a murderer from the beginning. He does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. My fear is that perhaps some of you here today have been on the receiving end of Satan's lies for far too long. And maybe you feel isolated. Maybe you feel alone. Maybe you feel like giving up, or you feel like everybody else has already given up on you. And I just want to tell you that it's not true. It's not true. It's a lie. And those are the lies that Satan wants you to believe. This man, he lived in a prison of demonic oppression. What prison are you living in? What are the chains that are, that are binding you? Are they the chains of depression? Are they the chains of an addiction? Maybe it's the chains of bitterness for wrongs that have been committed against you. But whatever the chains are that are holding you, Satan wants you to believe that there is no hope. Satan wants you to believe that you will never be free. But that's a lie. It's a lie because Jesus came. John chapter 10, verse 10, God's word says the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. He says, but I came that they might have life. They might have it abundantly. That's the truth. And those are words of hope. Jesus understands your pain. And not only does he understand, but he cares. He cares enough that he came. He wants to break you free from the chains of loneliness and depression. 
He wants to tear apart the shackles of bitterness. He wants to free you from the prison of, of sin and addiction. Jesus' desire is to breathe fresh, new, and eternal hope into your life. Jesus came to give you life. And not just life, but abundant life. Man, I got to ask you are, you, are you experiencing the abundant life that Jesus came to give you? Or are you settling for some sort of counterfeit? Well, that's exactly what, what Jesus has in store for this man. Abundant life. Verse 6 says, And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and he fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he, Jesus, was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. When the demon-possessed man sees Jesus, he runs up to him and he falls at his feet. And i got to be honest with you, I don't know. I, I, I can't tell you for sure whether it was the man himself who was falling at the feet of Jesus crying out for help, or if it was the demons inside of the man who threw him at the feet of Jesus, pleading for mercy. I don't know which one it was. Maybe it was, maybe it was both. But what is clear, however, is that Jesus was speaking directly to the evil spirit inside of him and saying, come out of the man. Jesus came for a broken man. Let's talk about evil spirits for a second. Shall we? What are they? What are they? Demons, uh, plain and simple, are fallen angels. They're fallen angels who rebelled with Satan against God. Satan, by the way, is also a fallen angel. Uh, sometimes I think we get this false idea that Satan is the equal opposite of God. You could not be further from the truth if you believe that. Satan is you got to get that. Satan is powerless before God. Do you understand that? That being said, Satan is powerful. He's very powerful compared to you. Right? But he's powerless before God. Revelation chapter 12, verse 9. Something to look forward to. Revelation 12, 9, we read, And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Satan is powerless before God. One of the questions that comes up as we read a passage like this is, uh, and it's a good question, can I, can I be possessed by a demon. You read a story like this, and it's kind of scary, right? To, to picture a man who's living among the tombs, he's so tormented that he's cutting himself and screaming out in pain, right? A natural question would be, could that happen to me? And the short answer is this. I believe the scriptures teach us that if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, and I want to say that again, with an emphasis on one word. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, the Bible tells us that His Holy Spirit dwells within you. Consequently, a Christian cannot be possessed by an evil spirit. 
God's not going to share his dwelling with an evil spirit. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. However, however, just because you cannot be possessed by an evil spirit does not mean that they are not a danger. We must be aware that even though a Christian cannot be possessed by demons, we are not immune from their attacks. We're not immune from their deception and their desire to completely derail you from the work that God has called you to. I believe that there are countless Christians who are rendered ineffective because they're listening to the whispers and the lies of Satan rather than embracing the truth of God's word for their lives. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. Peter is writing to Christians. And he says in verse 8, Be sober-minded. Be alert. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And he's writing to Christians. So, Christian, be alert. Be aware. Your adversary hates you. And even though he cannot... Demons cannot possess you. You can be influenced by their, by their lies. You can be derailed from the plan that God has for your life. So, here on the shoreline, Jesus is standing there. And at his feet is this tormented man on the ground before him. And Jesus commands the evil spirit to come out of the man. And the evil spirit says, what have you to do with me, Jesus Son of the Most High God, I adjure, I adjure, I beg you by God, do not torment me. There are at least, at least four things that we can learn from this, from this encounter, this dialogue that Jesus has with the evil spirit. Number one, the demons know who Jesus is. What have you to do with me, Jesus? They don't know just his name, but they know his position. Son of the Most High God. They know that Jesus is the Son of God. Do you? Number two, the demons fear Jesus. I adjure you, I beg you by God, do not torment me. See, they understood how powerful Jesus is. And they know that they are at his mercy. And they are afraid. The demons fear God. Do you? Number three. Actually, before we go to number three, in James chapter 2, verse 19, James says that you believe that there is a God, one God. You do well. Even the demons believe. And they tremble. I love the sarcasm of James here. You believe that there's a God? Duh, right? Obviously, everybody knows that, except for the 11% of Americans in 2016 that were polled. He says, even the demons believe that there's a God, and they actually fear him. Do you? They know exactly who Jesus is, and they are begging him not to torment them. Number three, the demons know their destiny. They beg Jesus not to torment them. 
In Matthew's telling of the same account, in Matthew chapter 8, the demons, they say this to Jesus. Jesus, have you come here to torment us? Ready? Before the time. See, they know that there's a time coming when their end is going to come. And their end means one thing for them. Torment. They know it's coming, and they're like, oh no, it's here already? It's not time. Number four, and this is a really important truth. Knowing about Jesus is not the same as knowing Jesus. Just because you know who Jesus is, you might even know that Jesus is the Son of God. The demons know that. We just heard it. That doesn't mean you actually know Jesus. Just because you attend church, just because you read your Bible, just because you memorize all kinds of awesome Bible trivia in Sunday school, and you can win Bible trivia with your family, that doesn't mean you know Jesus. It is one thing to know that he is the Lord, and it's another thing to surrender to him as your Lord. Because the demons know that Jesus is the Lord, right? But they do not worship him as their Lord, do they? Verse 9, Jesus asked him, what is your name? He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now, a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him, saying, send us to the pigs. Let us enter them. Just look at the fear. Look at the fear that Jesus invokes in these demons. When Jesus says, what's your name? They said, my name is Legion, for we are many. Now, a Roman legion was the largest unit of the Roman army and consisted of 6,000 soldiers at full strength. That doesn't necessarily mean that there were 6,000 demons in the man, right? It doesn't mean that there were exactly 6,000 demons in this man. But what it certainly implies is that there were many, just as the demon said. We are legion, for we are many, perhaps thousands. And so here you have thousands, perhaps, of demons hanging on Jesus' every word. I hope that paints a really awesome picture in your mind of the Savior that, that you serve. He's powerful. There is no question in their minds that Jesus has absolute control and absolute authority over them. They need his permission. You don't beg from someone you're equal to, do you? You don't beg for mercy. And, and let's not forget for a moment that, that there's a spiritual war being fought, right? And, and Satan and his demons are on the opposite side of the battle, aren't they? And so here they come. The forces are coming together and they're meeting on the battlefield. Isn't it a weird picture, don't you think? That the other side just gets there and they're like, oh, oh no, please don't. Please don't. Please don't torment us. Please don't hurt us. They, they don't even try to fight back. It's not a fair fight. Do you get that? That when Jesus is in the picture, it's not a fair fight. There's no challenge here. 
Verse 10 says that they literally begin to beg Jesus not to send them away. They'd rather be cast into a herd of pigs than to face the judgment of Jesus. Verse 13 says, so he gave them permission. And I don't know about you, but I am certainly grateful for the fact that the enemy of our souls is subject to the authority of our Savior. Amen? The enemy of your soul is subject, right? Yeah, you can clap about that. It's worth clapping about. We've already said this, but I want to remind you that that doesn't mean that we aren't going to be persecuted. It doesn't mean that, that Satan and, and, and demons don't have their eyes fixed on how they're going to render you ineffective in the mission that God has for you. However, what it does mean is that we can rest assured that Satan can do no more to us than what our Savior allows. And I think perhaps the best example of this that we see in Scripture is the story of Job. Satan, I mean, man, Job went through the ringer, didn't he? But at the end of the day, for me at least, when I read the story of Job, I take comfort in the fact that Satan could do nothing to Job that God did not allow. The enemy of your soul is subject to the authority of your Savior. Verse 13 continues, So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. Jesus came for a broken man to set him free. Now, I got to tell you, it is difficult for me. I'm not a pig farmer. I feed some boys that eat like <laughs> pigs. I've got three, three teenage boys, but... It is difficult for me to get my head around the picture of 2,000 pigs, much less 2,000 pigs going berserk and running for their death. Like, death would be better. 2,000 pigs go nuts, run over the banks, and drown in the sea. And that's difficult for me to get my head around. But what is more difficult for me to get my head around is this. It's difficult for me to imagine the type of torture that this man had been living under. Out of one man, there came enough demons to drive a herd of 2,000 pigs totally berserk that they ran over a cliff and into the sea. And he lived under that oppression day in and day out, always crying out, screaming. I can't even imagine what it would have been like to live in the town and hear this man's cries at night from the graves. Now think about this. If Jesus can handle thousands of demons with a spoken word, don't you think he can handle whatever it is that's holding you captive? Don't you think that Jesus can break the chains that have been binding you? It's an obvious yes. Yes, he can. Verse 14 says, the herdsmen fled. Yeah, they're in trouble. They're supposed to be watching out for the pigs. The herdsmen fled and told 
in the, in the city and in the country, and people came out to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. The herdsmen who were in charge, they run out and they begin to tell everybody what's happening. In other words, it's not our fault, right? They're letting everybody know what's just taken place down by the water. And word spreads quickly, and so the people, they come out to see for themselves what's taken place. And when they arrive, they are confronted with two wonders. Two wonders. The first wonder is, is here they have this man. This man who had broken every shackle they had bound him with. This man who had been wandering through the mountains, screaming in agony, cutting himself with stones. This man that they had been completely powerless to subdue. And they arrive here and they're confronted with this wonder because here he is, he's sitting, clothed, by the way, in one, I think it's Luke's gospel, when they described this man, it said he had no clothes. Add that to the picture of his torture. But here they arrive and he's now clothed and he's sitting there in his right mind. I picture that he's sitting there talking with Jesus and the disciples. That's the first wonder. And it's a miracle, right? They are confronted with a miracle. The second wonder that they're confronted with was the, the sudden loss of 2,000 pigs. This, again, I, I'm not a pig farmer, but this had to have been financially devastating to not only whoever owned the pigs, but to the entire community, right? So terrified, terrified, they begged Jesus to go away. Please leave here. If they even had any thought about harming Jesus, the sight of what they were looking at, 2,000 dead pigs and a guy that they could not free or shackle completely in his right mind. There's no thought whatsoever that they're going to do any harm to Jesus, is there? And so the best thing they can do is say, please just go away before something worse happens here. They could not deny that a miracle had taken place in the healing of this man. But get this. They were unable to accept the cost of his salvation. They could not accept the cost of his salvation. I mean, sure, he's all better, right? But we've just lost a fortune. They were unable to accept the cost of setting this man free. They cared so much more about the pigs than the fact that this man who had been in their presence for who knows how long, crying out, has been set free. The cost was too great. I wonder how many people reject Jesus for similar reasons today. How many people fail to accept Jesus because they think that the cost will be too great? They worry about what they might have to give up. You've heard that. They don't want to surrender their lives to his lordship. And so clinging to worthless idols, they reject the greatest gift, the gift of eternal life.
But one thing is for sure, Jesus won't stay where Jesus isn't wanted. He doesn't force himself on anyone, does he? And so Jesus gets into the boat to leave and head back to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Verse 18 says, As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. Jesus is getting ready to leave, and this man wants to go with him. He doesn't want to leave Jesus' side. His life has been radically changed. Jesus has set him free. And as far as he was concerned, there was only one place that he wanted to be, and that was wherever Jesus is. How about you? Do you feel the same way about Jesus? I don't care where I am as long as I'm there with with Jesus. Have you lost sight of your Savior? Have you forgotten the chains that once held you as a prisoner? It's easy to do. We're, We're fickle as humans, right? But we need to remember, just this guy, he hadn't forgotten yet. I wonder if we came back two or three years later, if he might be like, yeah, I'll follow Jesus today. You know, go to church. Maybe stay around for the potluck afterwards. You know. I mean, he was excited to be with Jesus. Right? We need to be reminded of that. Do you still desire to be close to him? To spend time with him? Now, it's not surprising to me. I don't read this, and I'm not shocked that this man wants to go with Jesus, right? But I think sometimes maybe Jesus' response is a little bit shocking to us. Verse 19, he, Jesus, did not permit him. Uh, But he said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he's had mercy on you. Jesus came for a broken man to set him free and to give him life. And I think sometimes we get it in our heads. I think we get it in our heads that, that, okay, I just became a Christian, so that means I I need to now sell everything I own and and find out what country around the world needs me the most. It's got to be overseas somewhere, right? Because that's what hardcore Christians do. They live for Jesus in another land, Right? No hardcore Christians sticking around here. Right? I mean, I think no doubt Jesus appreciates this man's willingness. I'm sure Jesus is like, yeah, I'm so glad you're willing to just come with me. That's awesome. But I think that what this man quickly discovers is that Jesus has better plans for him. Jesus has a mission for him. Jesus says, go back to where you're from. Go back and tell the people what the Lord has done. Show the people what God has done in your life. Man, God is not calling every single one of us to pack our bags and move across the globe. He calls some. And maybe he is tapping you on the shoulder to do just that. I think the key is that we need to be willing to go And to do what he calls this man to do wherever God calls us to go. 
Whether you're called to go across the seas or whether you're called to go across the streets, we've been given a mission to share with others what the Lord has done for us. Jesus came for a broken man to set him free and give him life. Jesus had a purpose for this man and a mission. Verse 20 says, And he went away, and he began to proclaim in the Decapolis, which was a, uh, an area of ten cities on the, on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, how much Jesus had done for him. And get this, everyone marveled. Jesus said, go back to where you're from and tell everyone what the Lord has done for you. And he went and he proclaimed and everyone marveled. It is hard to argue with a changed life, isn't it? We can spend so much time, so many countless hours trying to persuade someone that God loves them, that he has the power to free them. But there is nothing more convincing than your changed life. We can get so caught up in trying to have the perfect presentation, but Jesus spells it out really clearly here how we're supposed to share our faith. You want to know how to share your faith? It's right here. Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Don't tell them what he did in Chris's life. You don't even necessarily have to tell them what he did in this demon-possessed man's life. Tell them what Jesus has done in your life. And I don't know, is it possible that maybe the reason we don't want to tell people what Jesus has done in our life is because maybe we really haven't experienced what Jesus wants to us to experience in our lives? Maybe you're still waiting for Jesus to, to experience the abundant life that Jesus has prepared for you. And I'm not talking about a prosperity gospel here. Clearly, if you follow Jesus, it does not mean that everything's going to be like butterflies and rainbows. It, Jesus tells us it's going to be hard. Right? So we're not telling people that like, oh yeah, I got saved and like life has been amazing ever since and I've had no problems. That's not, that's not the gospel. Well, the amazing part is my life has been amazing. Because I have a Savior who walks through me, with me rather through the, the challenges of this life. And he's freed me from the sin in my life. He's broken the chains of addiction. He's broken the chains of sin and suffering that I was living under. And I think when we really experience that, it's a lot easier to tell people about that. We need to have an, a, a, really an experiential faith, not just an intellectual faith. Go back and tell people what Jesus has done in your life. As the worship team uh, comes up, I'll have Ian and, uh, well, the whole Jewett clan. Come on up. As they're coming up now to close us in song, I'll close with this. If, if you're a follower of Jesus, I want to encourage you I really want to encourage you to remember the joy of your salvation. Remember it. Take time, take time today to recall where you were before you gave your life over to Jesus and the way he set you free. 
Because if you're a follower of Jesus, then Jesus has set you free from the power of sin and death. That's huge. You realize that sin doesn't have to have victory in your life anymore as a follower of Jesus. That you actually have the power of the Holy Spirit inside of you that you can say no to sin. You were powerless before Jesus. You really were. I mean, it just... But when Jesus is in your life, wow. So I want to encourage you to fix your heart on pursuing that relationship with Jesus. And to embrace the plan that he has for your life. Again, whether it's to go far away or if it's to go across the street. But tell people what God has done. And let them see the changes that Jesus has made in your life. Because Jesus came for a broken man for a broken woman, to set them free and to give them life, right? That's my story. That's the story of the man here in, in, in Mark chapter 5. That's the story for many of you who are sitting here today, right? Jesus came for a broken man to set him free and give him life. Many of us have experienced that. But I also want to speak to those of you who are here today who maybe you don't know Jesus. Maybe you've never called out to him to free you from your sins and ask him to be your Lord, to be your Savior, to set you free from all that's holding you captive. I want to urge you to make today the day where you do cry out to him. Let that picture of the man falling at Jesus' feet be your story today. Whether it's literally falling down on the ground and crying out to Jesus and asking him to come into your life and set you free. Or whether it's just, maybe not physically, but, but in your heart, you're crying out to Jesus. I don't, I don't care, and I don't think Jesus necessarily cares either way. He knows your heart, and, and the Bible says if you will, cry out to him to confess that he is the Lord that he has the right to rule in your life, that he is the son of God who came to earth, died a death for your sins, paid the penalty for your sins. He rose from the grave. He's in heaven today waiting to return for his people. You believe that and you confess that you're a sinner and you need him. The Bible says you'll be saved. And that's good news because Jesus came for you. He came for you. He died for you. A broken people. He wants to set you free. And he wants to give you life. Abundant life. So today, as we close this service, if that's something you're ready to do today, I want to encourage you to right where you're, right where you're seated to cry out to Jesus. They'll be singing a song. Cry out to him. Ask him to come into your life and set you free. And if you do that, we want to walk with you on that journey. The Bible says you're called into a family. And we want to walk with you as part of the family. If you need a Bible, we'll get you a Bible. We want to, we want to join with you on your journey that God has for you. So come and talk to us afterwards. Let us know that you've made that decision. If you still have questions, you're not ready to make that decision, but you have questions that you, you just need to talk to someone about, come talk to us afterwards. We'd be happy to talk with you and spend some time together. All right? And for the rest of you, 
How about embracing the fact that you're free? You've been set free, all right? Let's stand together and sing.